ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Luke. The book of Luke. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 2 today. If you'd like to use the red Bibles and the chairs around you, you'll find our passage on page 857. And once you have your Bible open to Luke 2, I'm going to ask you to take your other hand and actually grab the hymnals that are in your, uh, around you as well and turn with me to hymn 207. 207. So there you'll find the hymn, Good Christian Men Rejoice. Uh, today is the fourth Sunday before Christmas, and that is hard to believe on the one hand. It is uh, what many of us refer to as the season of Advent beginning today. And so we're going to take a break from our uh, normal uh, routine of going through the book of Ephesians. And for today and the next three Sundays, we're going to have a thematic series on uh, that helps us to kind of think about Advent. And we're going to be looking at various hymns of Advent. Uh, today we'll be looking at 207, Good Christian Men Rejoice. And part of the reason to do that is because it's helpful for us to understand the words that we're singing in the various hymns that we love and, uh, and uh, are familiar to us. But that's not the primary reason why we're doing that this morning. The primary reason we'll do that today as well as the next three Sundays is we want to use one hymn each Sunday that we'll sing in our service, but also a hymn that we'll think about uh, in our service a little bit more extensively to help as a window into the biblical story about the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that story that's been recorded for us in God's word. So we're using the scriptures to see how Christ's birth is meaningful, not just to us in the past, but also as we wait for his second coming, his second advent. The word advent actually comes from the Latin word, which means arrival. It's traditionally a season when Christians remember back to the first arrival of Jesus as we wait for the second arrival, the second coming of our Savior. It's a time when we acknowledge in the past the light of God breaking into the darkness of the world 2,000 years ago. It's a time for us to remember the good news, the gospel of great joy that was announced and accomplished back then as we wait now eagerly for the return and the final elimination of darkness forever. So we're going to be looking at God's word, the scriptures, and some of these hymns that point us to the scriptures as we wait and prepare. So today we're going to be looking at Luke 2, and we're going to primarily be focusing in on verses 8 through 11, but I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 11 just to give us a little more context, and then we'll be looking at hymn 207. Now before I read the passage, let me just give you a quick background about this hymn. Uh, this hymn is actually a, a medieval Latin hymn, a carol that was translated by a man named John Mason Neal. He was a famous Anglican hymnologist in the 19th century, and he actually translated this hymn out of Latin and Old German. The hymn dates back to the late 14th century in Germany. But he translated it into English and then used it in one of his own uh, hymnals that he created in 1853. It's an ancient hymn going back to the 14th century, but it actually, uh, even before Neil translated it into English, the reformers used this hymn, along with some others, to help teach the congregations in the 15th and 16th and 17th centuries how to sing as a congregation. 
wasn't something that people were used to back then. And so this was one of the hymns that was used to help the congregation to learn how to sing together in praise to God. So let's now look at Luke chapter 2 and begin reading in verse 1 and read down through verse 11. There Luke tells us that in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel, the Lord, appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful good news of great joy. We thank you that you announced this incredible thing that was taking place so long ago. And we're thankful, Father, that you recorded it in your word so that we can read it and seek to understand who you are and what you have done bringing the Lord Jesus into this world, all that he had accomplished and what that means for us today. So, Father, as we think back to the first advent of our Lord Jesus Christ, and as we wait now for his second advent, would you teach us and encourage us from your word through the work of your Holy Spirit, who we pray would be present here in these very moments, taking your word and impressing it upon us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to do three very simple things this morning. I want us to first of all look at who it was that the angel brought this message to first. And second of all, look and see how they responded when they got the message. And then lastly, to see what the message was that they got. So first of all, who was the recipient of this message, the first Recipients of this message. Well, we get it in verse 8 of Luke chapter 2. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, when we read that, it should surprise us. It doesn't for us very much anymore because we know it's part of the story and we read it. And we know that that's what's going to happen. And we kind of move on to the next section. But this was designed to be surprising, shocking even, that it was the shepherds that God brought the announcement to first. Why? I wonder if God called on you or me to be in charge of the announcement of the birth of Jesus, what we would do. What extent would we go go to to help this announcement of the Son of God, the King of Kings, the Messiah, the Savior of the world being born? What would we do? What could have God have done? 
could have rent the heavens. He could have caused the kings of the world to give an edict so that everyone would know from the mouths of the kings that the king of kings had been born. But that's not what he did. What did he do? He went to a group of shepherds out in the middle of nowhere. It's intended to be surprising and shocking to us. These were people who were considered unimportant. They were not the cultural movers and shakers of that time. As a pastor friend of mine says, these were the bone and muscle third shift blue collar workers of the culture. They are not people the world is looking for as culture makers. But even more than that, it's surprising not only because of who they were, but the fact that the culture considered them as being the lowest class, of the, almost the lowest class of people. They were just above the lepers in that culture. They were nobodies. And on top of that, they had bad reputations. They were known as being thieves, as liars. They were so known for not telling the truth that their word, their testimony was not admissible in a court of law. Simply because they were shepherds. And on top of all of that, because of the fact that they worked with animals and often probably had to deal with dead animals, they were ceremonially unclean much of the time. Which meant that they would be excluded often from the religious ceremonies in the temple. This is who God brings the first announcement of the arrival of the Christ child to. I think God is making a point. He's not just interested in the stereotypical good people, the powerful, the rich, those who are considered important by the world. No, God comes first to the sinners, the marginalized, the excluded Those who are hurting. You can see that not only in the fact that he came to the shepherds first, but if you consider the entire context of the story of the birth of the Savior of the world. That same pastor friend I was mentioning a minute ago wrote an article recently to help us get our minds around the context of of Jesus being born. He pointed out that if you look back in the beginning part of chapter 2, verse 1 that we read earlier, we're told that in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. It's a reminder to us that this whole context of Jesus' birth comes to a people who were in an occupied territory. They were under the impression of another government. And we read a little bit further in chapter 2, verse 7, that when it came time for Mary to give birth... There wasn't any room for her. There wasn't a place for her in the hotel, in the inn. She had to be taken out to the livestock area and gave birth to the Savior of the world and put him in a manger. Now, I want you to reflect on that for a second. There was no OBGYN that was ready to deliver Jesus. There was no labor and delivery nurse. There was no heart monitor that you could hook up to Mary's belly. There was no OR that was standing by for the possibility of an emergency C-section. There was no epidural. When Jesus came, 
He was born into this world and there wasn't even a bed for him. He was put into a manger. Matthew, in his account of these things, tells us in chapter 2 that Herod, when he found out, King Herod was troubled that the king of the Jews was being born. And so we know what he did. He launched a campaign of infanticide. Imagine the devastation for so many people in that region. We're told a little bit later in Matthew's account that Joseph and Mary and Jesus had to flee to Egypt. Had to run for their safety to another country. And then later in chapter 2, Simeon will tell Mary that her own soul will be pierced as with a sword. The reminder of the context of all of these things. This is, this is the context in which Jesus is born into this world. And it's a reminder, the story of Christmas, the story of the birth of our Savior, is a reminder that the context is one of darkness and pain and grief. One of hurting and marginalized people. And God brought the message of the arrival of the Christ child first to these shepherds. And it reminds us now as we're waiting... For the second advent of our Savior, that we wait in a time and a place that is often filled with darkness. That's often going to be filled with grief and sadness. But as that same pastor friend of mine has said, our greatest hope in the message of Christmas is not the absence of our wounds. Our greatest hope is in the presence of Jesus. Jesus came for a people with wounds, people who are hurting, people who are considered unimportant, who are left out. And notice in verse 11, at the beginning of verse 11, the angel speaks to the shepherds, speaks to the shepherds and says, unto you, the Savior has come for those who are hurting, those who are wounded, those who are considered unimportant and left out and excluded. And so as we wait for the second advent, we don't pretend that everything is great, but we also don't lose heart and we don't lose hope because we know that the good news of great joy that came first to the shepherds is true. And it's true for us as we believe in that same Savior. But notice, hope and joy... And rejoicing is not necessarily the initial response of these shepherds. How did they respond as the angel came to them first with this message? We see that in verse 9. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with joy. They were rejoicing in their hearts. Now what does it say? They were filled with with great fear. I've shared the story with you before about how as I was growing up, the house that I grew up in on two different occasions was burglarized. Was, we were robbed. And I remember sometime shortly after the second time that the house had been broken into, I was still a young kid. I remember one morning, and I can remember it like it was yesterday. I can remember waking up early. It was still dark outside. And the reason why I woke up was because I heard noises downstairs. My bedroom was the door closest to the stairs that went down to the first floor. 
And I remember waking up and hearing the noises, hearing cabinets in the downstairs opening and closing and slamming shut. And the first thing I thought of were getting robbed again. And I can remember it crystal clearly. I froze. It, it, it was being paralyzed with fear. Literally, I can remember to this day not being able to move, thinking, move, move, and I couldn't move. I was paralyzed with fear. It seemed like an hour. I'm sure it was only just a matter of minutes. Now, it turns out it was my mom. She had gotten up even earlier than I did, and she had gone down and was opened up the dishwasher and was putting the dishes back up into the cabinet. But I can remember being paralyzed, frozen with that fear. I wonder if you've ever experienced anything like that. I wonder if that's partly what these shepherds felt. We read that they were filled with great fear. Why were they so afraid? Well, it's because an angel of the Lord appeared to them. Now, many times we we throw the word suddenly in there, and it's actually not in the text. We don't know that it was suddenly. The next group of angels that are going to show up in a couple of verses that we'll look at next week showed up suddenly. But what we do know, I think we can assume, is that these shepherds weren't expecting an angel of the Lord to show up in the middle of the night. And we know that the angels show up many times in the Bible. And every time they show up, almost every single incident of an angel showing up, the very first words that the angel has to say to the people that are the recipients of the angel's arrival is, Do not fear. Because when an angel of the Lord shows up, it is a scary scenario. But this angel, not only was an angel of the Lord, he had something else going on. Did you see what it said? An angel of the Lord showed up. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. Not only was he simply an angel, scary enough. This angel was accompanied with nothing less than the glory of the Creator. The glory of the Creator God lit up the sky and surrounded these lowly shepherds. Now these men, these shepherds, would have been very comfortable in darkness. After all, that was part of their jobs. And even this night, they were at night, darkness, watching over their flocks. They would have been very comfortable with the darkness of night. And all of a sudden, light invaded the darkness. But I think that their fear was not simply because they were night owls who preferred the darkness. Their fear was because of what kind of light this was. It was the glory of the Lord that caused the sky to light up. A display of the character of the Creator. Of His majesty. Of His beauty. Of His holiness. It was a light that revealed who God was. And anytime you come into the presence of a holy God... As a finite, sinful creature, you are made aware of the many ways that you fall far short of the holiness and the majesty of the Creator. These shepherds were confronted with the character and the holiness of God. And they were filled with fear because they knew that they were unworthy to be in God's presence. 
It reminds us of probably what it was like in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve sinned. You remember the story in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve had fallen. They had disobeyed God. They had brought sin into the world. And God came looking for them. And we read in Genesis 3 that He called out to them. And Adam and Eve hid. And when God asked why they were hiding, Adam said, it's because we knew we were naked and we were afraid. You see, when sinful human beings come into contact with a holy creator God, they are filled with fear. It's a reminder to us this season of Advent that as we're waiting in between the first Advent and the second Advent or coming of the Lord Jesus, we now have a more full understanding of the glory of God as we have His Word. And not only that, we have a more full understanding of our sin, how we have fallen short of God's perfect standard. So we ought to be, even more so than these shepherds, filled with humility and repentance. Why is it that whenever we're made aware of our sin, that our first instinct, our our gut reaction, is to get defensive? It's to explain why we're not as bad as somebody thinks we are. Or to turn the tables on whoever it is that's bringing it to our attention. God uses lots of means to bring an awareness of our sin to ourselves. It could be our bosses. It could be our co-workers. It could be our spouses. It could be our parents. It could be our children. It could be the Holy Spirit. Plain and simple. But whatever it is, when we are made aware of our sin, rather than becoming defensive, we ought to be, even more so than these shepherds, humble and repentant. After all, they didn't start explaining away their situation. They didn't get defensive. They knew who they were. They didn't try to defend themselves or explain themselves. So it's a reminder for us as we wait for Jesus' second coming, That we should be people who are filled with humility and who are quick to repent. As the Lord makes us aware of our sin, we ought to be people who acknowledge it, confess it, repent of it, turn away from it, and move on. And when we don't, it's because we are not understanding and appreciating what the shepherds understood and appreciated. But lastly, I want us to realize that The message that the angel brought to them was not a message that was meant primarily to fill them with fear. What what was the message? What was the message of this angel? We see that in verse 10. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. What was the message that the angel brought to them? He says, do not fear, fear not, for behold. To put it another way, don't be afraid, but look, see, put your focus on something, rejoice. 
understand the joy that the, of the message that I am bringing to you. It's the hymn that we have on, on 207, Good Christian Men Rejoice. It's how all three of the verses begin. Good Christian men and women, all people rejoice with heart and soul and voice. This is the message that the angel brought to the shepherds. You are not to fear. Instead, you are to behold. You are to see. You are to look at something. You are to have something. So grab your attention. Grab your imaginations. Grip your hearts. That the fear that you are experiencing is driven out. So what are they supposed to behold? Well, he tells them, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. What are they supposed to behold? They're supposed to behold the good news. Some of you know that word in the Greek is the word gospel. They are to behold the gospel. Don't fear, he says, but look at and consider and fix your eyes on the gospel this is the message that the angel brings to the shepherds. And he explains the gospel to them by giving them three aspects of this gospel. And each of these three aspects that we'll look at here just briefly is reflected in the hymn. Each of the verses of the hymn on 207 is bringing out one of these aspects. So what's the first aspect? The first aspect is that the, the Messiah has arrived. Look at what he says in verse 11. For unto you, he's tell, talking to the shepherds, the angels talking to the shepherds. He says, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's what the hymn is getting at here in verse 1. Good Christian men rejoice with heart and soul and voice. Give ye heed to what we say. Jesus Christ is born today. Earth and heaven before him bow and he is in the manger now. Christ is born today. Christ is born today. The word Christ is significant. It is not Jesus' last name. It's actually a title. And in Greek, it's the term that's used for the word Messiah. The one promised by God to Adam and Eve in the garden after the fall. The one that had been long expected and looked and hoped for. It has the sense of one who is anointed or set apart. A Messiah who is called and promised and set apart to come. To accomplish some work. This is the message of the angel. That the Messiah that they had been waiting for. Was now there. He's in the manger. But that's not the only thing that he tells them. In explaining this gospel of good news. It's not just that the Messiah has arrived. It's that the Messiah has arrived. And he's bringing a blessing. For God's people. The arrival of the Messiah means, he says, good news of great joy for all the people. That's what the hymn is getting at here in verse 2. Good Christian men rejoice with heart and soul and voice. Now you hear of endless bliss. Jesus Christ was born for this. He hath opened heaven's door and man is blessed evermore. Christ was born for this. Christ was born for this. The promise that the Jews had been looking for to be fulfilled for millennia was now being fulfilled in their midst. The Messiah would come and he would rescue his people and bring them blessing. 
Those who had been alienated from God because of their sin would be rescued and redeemed and reconciled through the work of the Messiah. They indeed would have a blessing from Him. And notice what He says at the end of verse 10. It will be for all the people. That little word, the is actually specifically mentioned in the Greek text. The the definitive article, the, is there. Luke was making a point to say all the people. It's actually a phrase that shows up a number of times in Luke's books. And he uses it specifically to refer to the Jews. God's people that had been set apart. The people was a common and general term used for the Jews. The angel came proclaiming the arrival of the Messiah and said to them, His work was good news first for the Jews, those who had been waiting for it. Later in chapter 2 of Luke, in verse 32, we'll read that Simeon points out to Mary and to Joseph that it's good news not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. And so what we're hearing here is that the Messiah has come bringing a blessing For all the people of God, Jew and Gentile, who have faith in the Christ child. There's a third thing that is pointed out here to help us to understand this gospel. It's not only that the Messiah has arrived and that he's arrived to bring blessing for all of God's people, but the one who has come, the Messiah, is also the Savior and the Lord. That's what we see in verse 11. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The word Savior was a specific word. It means it's a a role. It means deliverer. Someone who rescues others from death and destruction. The angel is pointing out to the shepherds that Jesus came to bring salvation. He came to bring reconciliation between the Almighty Creator and His people. He would deliver them from their sin and its ultimate consequence of being separated from God. He would conquer the world, the flesh, and even Satan himself and bring an end to death, removing its sting and fear. That's what the hymn gets at in verse 3, the first two lines. Good Christian men rejoice with heart and soul and voice. Now you need not fear the grave. Jesus Christ was born to save. The Savior comes and death no longer has any sting or power over us. This last term here of Savior and Lord, it was a, Lord was a term of honor. It had a sense of power, authority, and sovereignty. Luke actually uses the word Lord a dozen times before we get to this passage in Luke. And almost every time he uses it, it refers to deity, the sovereign God of the universe. But here in chapter 2 is the first time that Luke brings it together with Christ. It is Christ the Lord. And what he is telling us is that Jesus is not simply a man that God would use to bring blessing and reconciliation in some worldly way to his people, but Jesus was the Christ the Lord. In other words, the Messiah is none other than God himself who has come to rescue his people. The problem that was created in the garden by Adam and Eve could only be solved by God himself. And so he came into this world. Jesus was truly God, truly man. Tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. 
full of all power and authority as the sovereign creator God, one of us, and yet with the power and ability to pay the debt that we owed and to defeat even death itself. That's what the hymn is getting at in verse 1 in the third line where the hymn goes, Earth and heaven before Him bow. It's interesting though that that's actually not the original line in the hymn that goes back to the 14th century. The the original line of the hymn in that place right there, rather than earth and heaven before Him bow, the original line was ox and ass before Him bow. Now somewhere along the lines, there have been various editors of this hymn, and some, somewhere before it got into our Trinity hymnal, one of the editors looked at that line and said, it's not good enough. It's not big enough to simply say that animals bow before the Creator God. So one of the editors put in not just ox and ass, but earth and heaven bow before the Christ child, because He is the Lord. He is the sovereign God Almighty. This is the message of the angel. Don't fear, he says. Don't fear. Let your fear be driven out as you behold, as you, as you look at, as you focus your attention on the gospel, the good news that the Messiah has arrived and that He is bringing salvation as a blessing for God's people And he indeed is God himself. I want you to notice that the hymn finishes with a call. The last two lines of verse 3 say, Calls you one and calls you all to gain his everlasting hall. Christ was born to save. Christ was born to save. The hymn ends with a call for all of us, a a call for all of us to respond, to gain the everlasting hall, to believe the message that the angel brought to the shepherds first, to believe and to love and to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not a Christian, Then the call this morning from the hymn and more importantly from the word of God is for you to answer the call to gain the hall, so to speak, by putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We all have to recognize that one day we will all appear before the Lord God Almighty and we will have to give an account for our lives and we'll either have to be able to offer our own lives as perfect in every way in our obedience and our love to our Father, without an even ounce of sin ever once in our lives, or we'll need someone else to do it for us. And the Scriptures are plain. There's only one who has ever lived a perfect life of love and obedience, and that was Jesus. Believe in Him. Trust in Him. May today be the day that He is the good news of great joy for you. But there's a call for us, for us as God's people here this morning as well. When we find ourselves filled with fear, when we feel powerless against our sin, when we feel a lack of motivation to grow in Christ-likeness and holiness, 
The reason why is because in that moment, we are not beholding the gospel of God's grace. Our eyes, our attention, our focus on other things, maybe even good things. We easily put our attention and focus on things other than the Lord. And when we do, our hearts are given to those things more than we are given to the Lord. The call for us this morning as God's people is to have our hearts gripped with this wonderful story of the gospel. That we be gripped more by this wonderful message of good news, of great joy than we are by anything else in all of creation. And so now as we wait for the second coming, the second advent of Jesus, we should spend time beholding the gospel. And to use even the season of Advent to reflect on the ways that our, our, our eyes and our hearts are beholding anything more than our Savior Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful that in your providence, in your wisdom, you decided to bring the announcement of the arrival of the Messiah, Lord Jesus Christ, to these shepherds. These people who were thought of as being nobodies and unimportant, out in the middle of nowhere. And I pray, Father, that maybe we relate to them, or maybe we don't relate to them, but regardless, that we would be encouraged by how you have declared this message in such a way that we have it today in front of us. Help us to hear your call, to believe it, to behold the wonderful good news of great joy that we know is true. And as we look forward to his second coming, encourage us and move us to be your people. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. you're around our church very long, you'll hear us talk about the Lord's Supper as being a sign and a seal. And what we mean when we say that this Lord's Supper, this covenant meal is a sign, is that the bread is intended to point us to the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the wine or the grape juice is intended to point us to the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that is shed to give us forgiveness of our sins. It's a sign because it points us back to the first advent. It it points us back to all that Christ accomplished in His coming to this earth. It's a reflection of what Jesus has done and who He is. It reminds us of the good news of great joy that is for us as God's people as we partake by faith. So it is a reminder to us. It helps our memories. But we also talk about this as a means of grace, as a, as a seal. It's more than just an aid to our memory. It dramatically impresses on our hearts and our souls the reality of Christ's work, of who we are in Christ It reinforces the power of the gospel through the Holy Spirit. It strengthens our faith. And it makes what we believe even more real and certain to us. But it only acts as a sign and a seal for us as we come in genuine faith in Christ. In other words, we don't get faith from the Lord's Supper. Uh, The Lord's Supper doesn't give us faith. 
Faith comes as a gift from God through the work of the Holy Spirit as we hear the word of God preached and respond to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord's Supper is a means of grace to remind and strengthen the faith that we already have in Christ. So that's the reason why the PCA, our denomination's policy, is to invite all who have made a profession of faith in Christ alone for their salvation and have been baptized and connected to a Bible-believing church. It doesn't have to be Trinity, but a church that believes and teaches God's Word as true. So if you're here this morning and you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've been united to Him in faith, and you've connected yourself to a local body of believers by professing and declaring your faith publicly, then as the trays are coming around, eat and drink and be reminded and be strengthened in your faith through the work of the Holy Spirit. If you're here this morning and that's not you, then we would ask you to let the elements pass by. And instead, there's some prayers at the back of the bulletin, just inside the back cover, that you could use to pray and ask the Lord to reveal Himself to you as, as the Savior who was born into this world and who's coming again in the future. So let's pause before we eat and drink and let's give thanks to the Lord for giving us this Lord's Supper. Our Heavenly Father, we do come before you with thankful hearts that you give us this means of grace. We pray for the Holy Spirit to be at work as we come to you in faith maybe even a greatly shaken faith, a weak faith, but a genuine faith, a real faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in Him. We pray that You would be at work. Help us to remember all that You've accomplished for us already in Christ's first advent. Help us to trust in You in greater ways as we wait for His second coming. And in all of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.